From around the world, this is the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. The following audio drama is a production of 63 Audio and the Narada Radio Company, a proud member of the all-new Mutual Audio Network. Taken from the pages of magazines your grandfather used to hide from your grandmother, this is Pulpery Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. This is a tale of the jungle, that wild, savage land where nature holds sway. A land where men are either the hunter or, as so often happens in tales like these, the prey. Our story for tonight, Tame Me This Beast, was written by Robert Moore Williams, and it appeared in the May 1950 issue of Startling Stories magazine. If you've been with us for our earlier episodes of Pulp Free Theater, you'll know that we are doing our best to bring you a wide variety of stories for your listening pleasure. So far, we've presented dramas from the science fiction, crime, and Western genres, entered the realm of the supernatural, told you tales of the average Joe and the untamed frontier, and treated you to a taste of the macabre. In the final four episodes remaining in this season, we plan to bring you such diverse fields as war stories, sports, romance, and espionage. But our story for tonight is of the jungle, and we'll get started on that after this brief word. You're listening to Pulpery Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company, on the air. As a special feature of Pulpery Theater, we have sent our intrepid reporter, Phil Boyd Studge, out to interview a man who has a very strange yet real occupation. We'll let Phil Boyd tell you all about it. So, from Mount Rushmore, South Dakota, take it away, Phil Boyd Studge. Bill Boyd Studge here, high atop Abraham Lincoln's hairline on Mount Rushmore, to speak with a man who has a very strange yet real occupation, a crack filler here on America's most recognizable national monument. Mr. August Q. Krampheimer, thank you for taking the time to speak to our Popery Theater audience. Ah, uh, just call me Augie. Only my mother called me August, and she's been dead for 15 years. And may I call you Phil? No. Augie, it seems that what you do here on Mount Rushmore is highly dangerous work. Can you tell me how you became a crack filler? 
Well, Mr. Studge, I have been filling the cracks and fissures that form in the faces of Presidents Lincoln, Jefferson, Washington, and Roosevelt for nigh on to 40 years. I inherited this job from my father, who did it himself from the time Mount Rushmore was finished in 1941 until the time of his sudden death in 1974. And today, as you can see, I've got a few people with me who are going to be trying out to be my replacement. I'm not getting any younger, you see, and I was so busy filling those cracks and fissures over the past 40 years that I never had the time to get married and have a son so he could take over. I see, um... Oh my gosh, one of your people just fell off the top of George Washington's head. Yeah, well, I told those dang kids to be careful. The rest of you squirts, don't do what that guy did, whatever it was. Stop horsing around and be careful. Do you think he's going to be okay? Oh, sure. He signed a waiver before he came up. Now, did you have any other questions you wanted to ask me? Um, sure. Well, I wanted to ask you, what do you use to fill the cracks and fissures that form in the monument? I am very glad you asked me that question. You see, we use something now that we didn't have back when my father first started the job. What my old man used and what I used to use was a mixture of granite dust, linseed oil, and number seven white lead powder. That, unfortunately, was proven to cause cancer in laboratory mice, so ever since 1989, I've used a number 10 silicone sealant. <laughs> There's a joke I like to make about that. Um, it goes, why should I care about lab mice getting cancer? They're not going to be out here filling in the cracks. <laughs> Get it? Uh, uh, yes, sir. The, uh, that's a good one. Now, uh... <laughs> There goes another one. Are you sure these youngsters should be out here on such a windy day? You and I are out here, ain't we? You can't predict the weather, so you can't complain when you got to work on a windy day. Now, dang it. I told you, Squirts, to stop that horse around. I saw you push that guy off the edge. Don't deny it. Do you think it was funny? Now, get into your safety harness and don't let this happen again. Now, what were you asking me, Mr. Studge? Um... Well, uh, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to do what you're doing here on Mount Rushmore? Well, I'd advise them to start small. See if they have a knack for repairing broken plates and vases at home. Then build up to plaster statuettes or tombstones. And finally, come out here to Mount Rushmore and get things to try with me. Ah! ah. Dang it, there goes my last one. So if you don't mind, I'd like to announce an immediate job vacancy on your program. Yes, I don't blame you, Augie. And I can see that it's time to wrap things up here with crack filler Augie Krampheimer in South Dakota. So until next time, this is Phil Boyd Studge saying so long for now. You mentioned your father had this job until his sudden death. What happened, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, a bus hit him. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Tame Me This Beast, tonight's installment of Pulpery Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. Ralph Kirkendall is our storyteller. He's laboratory assistant, hired gun, and general factotum to Professor Jerome Shaler, who has set up his own little science experiment on an otherwise uninhabited island not far from Borneo. Yes, it's just Ralph, the professor, and twin brothers Tom and Freddie, who were members of the Dyak tribe of headhunters, but more about those two later. Kirkendall is no stranger to these islands, having experienced them firsthand while fighting the Japanese in the war. Listen now to Tame Me This Beast. You pig! You dirty son of a pig! In the compound, Professor Shaler was beating Tom again. I knew the Dayak native was a Muslim, so this insult of being called a pig and the son of a pig should have stung worse than the injury from the bullwhip. I stood at a distance and watched the tall, muscle-bound black just stand there with an impassive face as the much smaller white man slashed and cut into his skin with the leather whip. Shaler's magic. Shaler, who had tamed a fierce black leopard to act like an overgrown house cat, was now working on new trickery domesticating one who, not many months ago, had been a jungle wild man. A wild man whose chief occupation was taking and curing certain unusual, uh, trophies, which had given his tribe the name of Headhunters. I walked through the unlocked compound gate and approached Shaler and Tom. Before I knew it... Ah! Damn you, Shaler! Mm. Ooh! Well done, Kirky! What? Oh, you were using me as a control... I'm sorry. I reacted before I thought. <laughs> you did exactly what I wanted you to do. Here, help me up. Kirky, it looks as if we have done what we set out to do. And what exactly is that? I don't know if you were too busy reacting to the whiplash to notice, but even as I was falling, I noticed that young Tom over there is still standing, exactly how and where he was standing before you knocked me down. That is, while I was lashing him. In a normal man, there would be some sign of satisfaction on his face that justice had been done, that his abuser had been punished. But look at his face. Just as impassive and indifferent as it was while he was being beaten. It's as if he thinks the common exchange of greetings between white men is for one to crack a whip against the other's arm and for the other to punch the first one in the jaw. <laughs> yes, indeed, I do believe we are making great strides in our research. Eh, I'm not certain how much we there is in that statement, Shaler. After all, you're the brains in this operation, and I'm... You're the brawn? Mm. Perhaps, but I can afford to be generous in your case. I couldn't have done this without you, Kirky. Your knowledge of this part of the world, not to mention your success in protecting me from the dangers of the jungle that surrounds us, has been of great value to me. I'll take you with me as I move up. Be certain of that. Professor Shaler's praise was appreciated, but I had a feeling that while nobody could do what he was doing, anybody could have done what I did, and he knew it. After all, I'd had my IQ tests and my psychological exams, and while I was of above-average intelligence, I was no superbrain like Shaler. We'd come to the island together, used hired men to hack the clearing out of the jungle, and erect the Hudson compound. After the men had been sent home, Shaler got down to his real work. The twin Dayak brothers, Tom and Freddy, and the Black Leopard had been brought to the island by Garson, the sea trader, and sold to Shaler for the highest price the greasy little man had thought he could get. Go rest now, Tom. Tom, go now. Get some rest. Ugh. 
Migo. I watched the Dayak shuffle slowly away and contemplated the punishment the black had received. Standing in the hot sun in the middle of the compound, the whip mark standing out as red streaks on his back. If Shaler could turn a headhunter into a man who would submit to the whip, then he could indeed work wonders. I felt my heart quicken at the thought. I had already seen miracles on this island. That black leopard rolling over onto his back in submission on the other side of this fence made me even more aware of the true nature of that miracle. Outside the compound was the jungle, Tom's native habitat. He could slip into that jungle and go back to his old life, fishing on the reefs, hunting in the green tangle that constantly threatened to overrun our little clearing. The point was, Tom did not choose to leave. Not even the whip could drive him away. I believed that Shaler must be using some kind of new drug of his own design, but I didn't know anything else. Whew, that wore me out. Let's go to my hut, Kirky. Get out of the sun and get us a drink. There are a few things I'd like to talk to you about. Sure thing, I can always use a- Whoa! Freddy, you savage son of a- His aim's getting better. Yours, not so much. What? His aim? That black devil will kill us yet! He's back in the jungle right now, plotting his vengeance on us for bringing him here. You know that, don't you? There's probably nothing on earth would please him more than the sight of your head, or mine, drying nicely over a slow fire. Well, I've got you to keep him from potting us like sitting ducks. Ugh. Just look at this spear tip. Freddy's found himself a piece of iron somewhere and wetted it to a point on a rock. Ingenious devils, these natives. Shaler spoke as if he were pleased with Freddy's attack on us. Freddy, Tom's twin brother, had obviously not been given Shaler's secret drug. He had been allowed to remain what he originally was, a savage. He was the control, the individual left untested for purposes of comparison. Shaler stood there with a grin on his face, looking at the spot where Freddy had dived back into the wild. The fact that the Dayak had just tried to kill him caused him no concern. I like that one, I really do. Freddy's an honest killer, Kirky, an example of man in his natural state. Shaler, he just tried to spit-roast you, and you say you like him for it? What else could you expect from a headhunter? Besides, Freddy goes a long way towards proving the success of my experiment. Listen, Kirky, when it comes to my work, nothing else matters. This experiment is the culmination of years of patient research. I've spent my life savings on making this a success. And as you've seen, I've made a breakthrough, but I'm not done yet. What comes next? Next? Well, I'd like to have at least one more native, preferably two, for testing. If that is successful, next comes... What are you looking at me for? You don't mean me. Uh-huh. But that wasn't part of our contract. I know it wasn't, and you don't have to participate if you don't wish to. I didn't mean you alone, I meant both of us. Oh. That was different. This was something that required a little thinking. Suddenly, a little voice whispered in the back of my mind, What's in it for me? We will have to test the response of several people conditioned by civilized life. Ah, here we are. Let's go in. There's the bottle, Kirky. Help yourself while I change my shirt.
Shaler, tell me more about this plan of yours. Why are you so hot to change the nature of people? We've been getting along pretty well without you for quite a while, you know. Well, I'm happy to tell you, Kirky. But are you ready for a pretty sizable yarn? I'm game. All right. Make yourself comfortable, and I'll tell you a tale. You're listening to the Narada Radio Company's Pulpery Theater presentation of Robert Moore Williams' Thrilling Jungle Story, Tame Me This Beast. We'll be back with Act Two of our play in just a moment. Hello, friends. This is Phil Boyd Studge, one of the members of the Narada Radio Company, and I'm back again today to tell you about the latest Crazy Bargain from Crazy Crambones Discount Warehouse in Sandusky, Ohio. Well, Crazy Crambones gone absolutely certifiable this time, bringing you a deal that you'd be nuts not to take advantage of. Approximately 15 cases of Army Surplus Potted Meat. What's potted meat? Well, I guess you could say it's similar to spam, like processed meat products in a can or cans, as in this case, and what cans. Each one weighs about five pounds and is about two feet tall. Imagine these unusual cans sitting on a shelf in your family room, kitchen, or office with their distinctive size and decorative stencil markings in black paint that plainly state, meat, potted, U.S. Army. Now friends, this is not your everyday run-of-the-mill army surplus stuff that fell off the back of a Jeep, I'll have you know. The cases that these cans of potted meat come in have an invoice that directs the shipment to San Juan Hill, Cuba, and they're dated July 2nd, 1898, which, historically speaking, had them going one day too late for the Battle of San Juan Hill, which I suppose is the reason why there were so many of these surplus cans. The battle didn't last very long, and the Spanish-American War was over almost as soon as it began, so... What? What? Hey, you just watch your language, fella. My engineer was indicating that I'm boring the crap out of him and I should move on, but he used a different word than crap. <laughs> you just mind your mouth, fella. Anyway, where was I? Yeah. Well, I've learned my lesson from last time with those terrible smelling cans of Kleindock vegetable cocktail juice, so I won't be opening any of these cans of potted meat for you today. Consider them for display purposes only, and just think, if you own a restaurant with a nostalgic theme, or just to decorate your home, how lovely and interesting these big five-pound cans will look on shelves and counters and in stacks on the floor in the baby's room. So that's approximately 15 cases of Army Surplus Potted Meat from the Spanish-American War era now on sale at Crazy Crambone's Discount Warehouse in Sandusky, Ohio. Don't delay. I imagine some history buffs will be snapping these up in no time. Yeah, that's right. I told you to watch your mouth. Don't you talk to me that way on microphone. Oh. Welcome back to Tame Me This Beast, tonight's installment of Pulpery Theater starring the Narada Radio Company. When we left off, Professor Shaler was getting ready to tell Ralph Kirkendall his assistant and bodyguard, all about his plan to change the nature of man. It's sure to be a fascinating tale. So let's listen in, shall we? What I'm after here on this island 
is to domesticate Earth's last great wild animal. The dog, the horse, the pig, the elephant, the camel, and the cow were all domesticated in prehistoric times. But Earth's last wild beast has never been tamed. Man himself. Civilization has never done more than lay a thin veneer over him. Under this veneer, the great beast is always visible, quick to resent a fancied wrong and hot to avenge it in blood, quick to sniff out a bargain, eager to buy cheap and sell dear, quick to grab a gun, a knife, a poison spear, or an atomic bomb, and rush forth to hunt his greatest enemy, his own kind. Keep talking. I'll listen as long as this hooch holds out. <laughs> oh, Kirky. I'm not sure how much of this you understand, but I appreciate your humoring me. I am, by inclination, a dreamer. What you and I, and Tom and Freddy, by extension, are doing here is fulfilling my great dream. The abolition of war, of political parties and politicians, of fascism and communism and any other form of totalitarianism. The elimination of poverty, hunger, and want. The building of a world where all men have enough, and none too little or too much. Well, you're not alone, Professor. There's lots of men who want that sort of thing. What I can't see is how teaching young Tom to take a whipping and like it compares to eliminating communism and those other isms. What are you- Kirky, I'm getting to that. To accomplish this goal, we must remove the self-glorifying impulse from the human race. That urge that leads men to try to accumulate more than they can use themselves. What's more, I hope to modify the aggressive ego that drives a man to think, What's in it for me? Uh. Perhaps you never would have thought about this, but in the animal world, ego is never an issue. The male wolf does not fight his mate, the dog does not snap at the bitch, the stallion does not shrill his challenge to the mare. This is my starting point. If males can be kept from fighting the females, why can't they be kept from fighting with each other? I believe it can be done. I propose to short circuit the aggressive impulses rising within the primitive brain so that they are never reflected in hostile actions. And how you will do it is with some new miracle drug of your own devising, right? Isn't that what you used on Tom, on the Black Leopard? And now you propose to give it to me one of these days? Kirky, I do believe you're getting a bit drunk. Yes, if you must know, it's a drug. Very subtle and tasteless, and only the finest chemical analysis can detect its presence in a body. We're testing it here to prove what the drug can do under the most difficult circumstances. Wild animals and headhunters are the perfect subjects, don't you agree? I hope when my tests are complete to secretly introduce my drug into the water systems of the cities of the United States. The effect I hope to achieve will be a gradual lessening of the conflict between individuals. What? You want to put this stuff in the American water supply? Are you crazy? How can you hope to get away with it? Of course I hope to get away with it. I told you my drug worked subtly and slowly. It might be years before somebody suspects that something has happened. And by that time, Earth will have become, again, another Eden. But we are not there yet, Kirky. So drink up and be happy, my friend. If you agree to go through with this testing with me, we shall check the results day by day and hour by hour. I don't want to make any mistakes, and I certainly do not wish to do you any harm. Well, what do I get out of it? I mean... Get out of it? If nothing else, 
peace, a serene outlook, a freedom from the day-to-day hates and hostilities that arise in all of us and which create the conflicts that warp us from our true nature. Well, I'll have to think about it. You don't need an answer right away. Of course not. (sighs) I'll have to sleep on it. I'm going to my hut. I'll see you in the morning. I'd pretended to be drunker than I was, and then pretended to be sleepy, but the truth was I just wanted to get out of there and think on my own. On my way to my hut, I considered Shaler's words and felt fear creep over me. Supposing the experiment didn't work on me, and if it did, well, that little voice whispered, what's in it for me, again, in the back of my mind. You're listening to the Narada Radio Company's Potpourri Theater presentation of Robert Moore Williams' thrilling tale, Tame Me This Beast. We'll be back with just a moment. As a special feature of Pulpery Theater, we've sent our intrepid reporter Philboyd Studge to Staten Island, New York, to get an interview with a man whose name is reportedly the single most difficult name to pronounce in the world. Are you ready, Philboyd? Take it away from Staten Island. This is Phil Boyd Studge speaking to you from Staten Island, New York, where I will be interviewing a man whose name is reportedly the single most difficult name to pronounce in the world. And that name is, uh, well, what is your name, sir? My name is ZVBXRPL Fingerman. So you can't pronounce it either? No, I find it easier just to spell it out up front for people. Obviously, it's just my first name that's so hard to pronounce. Fingerman is easy-peasy, and it's spelled just like it sounds. So this first name of yours... Z-V-B-X-R-P-L? Yes, Z-V-B... what you said. It is very unusual. What is the nationality of such a name? Well, that's just it. There's no nationality to it. My parents were rabid Marx Brothers fans. Excuse me, Marx Bro? Yeah, this ZVBXRPL name comes from their movie A Day at the Races, where Chico Marx was trying to cheat Groucho out of some money by selling him a fake code book for the racehorses. And ZVBXRPL is one of the codes. I think I've seen the film you're talking about, and I remember now that Groucho never pronounces it as a word. He just spells it out loud. Yeah, and this line is classic. I think I had this horse the last time I got my eyes examined. (laughs) Yes, that's a good line, but I see you're not laughing. Yeah, well, considered the circumstances, 
If I had a nickel for every time I heard somebody quote that line at me. I had no idea there were so many Marx Brothers fans on Staten Island. Well, they seem to come out of the woodwork when my name gets mentioned. My childhood was hell, too. I know how cruel children can be when another child has an unusual name. Well, I would have been ecstatic to have a name like Phil Boyd Studge in comparison to ZVBX RPL Fingerman, believe me. Can you imagine your mother shrieking your name at the top of her lungs, calling you in for dinner? ZVBXRPL! Time for supper! Well, I can imagine it now. Well, I've been in therapy for it eleven years now. And you know what else? The phone company refuses to put me in the book. They think I'm kidding when I spell my name out for them. Yes, I can see how they would. They're pretty unforgiving over at the phone company. Yeah, well, I'd sue my parents, but they're already dead. Well, it's a pity that they're beyond prosecution, Mr. Fingerman. And I can see that it's time to wrap things up here on Staten Island. And so, on behalf of Mr. ZVBXRP Fingerman, this is Phil Boyd Studge. ZVBXRPL. Back to the studio. Welcome back to Tame Me This Beast, tonight's installment of Pulfrey Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. Next morning, we spotted the movement of a tramp steamer at the entrance to the lagoon, and we knew that Captain Garson was back. Good! He's probably got some new specimens for us. We watched the steamer put a launch out for the beach. Captain Garson is a great doughbelly of a man, with rat-like eyes and a drooping mustache. He joined us in Shaler's hut, sitting on a camp stool in his dirty whites, gun in the holster at his hip nearly touching the floor, drinking raw rum and talking evasively to Shaler. I stood to one side and watched the interchange, realizing immediately that Garson was curious about the activity on our little island. Or maybe curious was too mild a word. And how are things coming with your Professor Shaler? Oh, so-so. And hmm. um, what did you say were the uh, nature of your work here? I'm an anthropologist. Anthropologist? Anthropologist, a student of man. Cigarette? No? We are studying the reactions of primitive peoples to certain, uh, stimuli. Garson didn't react to this at first. He let his gaze travel around the hut, rest for a moment on the metal trunk under Shaler's cot, then look quickly up at Shaler again. 
He scratched the salt and pepper stubble on his jolly face and said, Mm-hmm. Well, every man to his own trade, I always say. I'm the devil for all. <laughs> I have some merchandise that might interest you. Good. What do you have? A couple of blocks from Borneo. I got them on the ship. Go see if they will serve our purpose, Kirk. Sure. I was glad to get away. Garson irritated me. The fat man was essentially a slave trader who carried on a secret and illegal traffic between the islands. These are extra special specimens, Professor. I'll be needing a thousand dollars apiece for them. In gold, of course. <laughs> I overheard Garson's comment about the gold, and on my way to the beach, I reflected on how, in this part of the world, gold was the only satisfactory medium of exchange, and how Shaler had nearly $8,000 of the stuff, in coin, in that trunk under his cot. At Garson's launch on the beach, two of Garson's crew were standing post. Captain Garson said I was to go inspect the, uh, merchandise. Yes, our Cap'n. Step right aboard, Cap'n. What was that shot? Came from the clearing, didn't it? What? Ugh. Yeah, you got him solid, mate. Leave him here, but take his gun. We go and see Cap'n Garson. What he do? <laughs> I have no idea how long I was out, but eventually I became aware of sharp popping sounds. I sat up and leaned against the boat. It was still on the beach, but the two men were gone. I got unsteadily to my feet, and when I was upright, I looked toward the path in the jungle that led to the clearing. At that moment, Garson and his two crewmen broke through and saw me, and one raised his gun and fired. I dropped flat, reached my hand down to my holster, and found it empty. Quick as I could, I raced across the beach to the jungle. Bullets whistled around my ears as I dove headfirst into the protection of that tangle. I had made it safely into the jungle, despite the efforts of Garson and his men to kill me. I had a strong suspicion that the bag I'd seen slung over Garson's shoulder had contained the 8,000 in gold coin from Shayla's trunk, and an even stronger suspicion that they were more interested now in getting away than they were in coming back for me. A quick glance into Shayla's hut confirmed my first suspicion. The broken lock and overturned furniture spoke volumes. I had to trust my instincts on the second hunch. My attention was drawn to a trail of blood that led from Shaler's hut to the larger research structure. Figuring it to be the professor's blood, I followed it to see if he was still alive. Shaler! Shaler! Kirky, I called for you. You didn't come. Him say him hurt bad. Tom? Sorry, Tom, I, I didn't see you there. Have you been helping the professor? No. He wouldn't help me. Drug I gave took away his compassion. Compassion. As well as his aggression. I failed, Kirky. Failed. Ugh. I quickly felt Shaler's pulse to see if he was dead, but he had just passed out from his wounds. I carried him to his cot and brought bandages for him. I could patch up the gash in his head and splint his broken leg, but I couldn't remove the bullets from his leg and shoulder. He'd lost too much blood, and it was just a matter of time. 
Shaler came too, long enough to tell me what had happened after I left for the beach. Garson had distracted him and shot him in the head, but the bullet had only creased his skull. He'd been knocked unconscious and had come to in time to see Garson smashing the padlock on his trunk and sacking up the gold coin. Garson had shot him twice more for good measure and run off with his crewman, and Shaler had half-crawled, half-dragged himself the quarter-mile to the research hut, thinking that the medicines there would soon cure him. But once he was inside and saw the medications on the top shelf, he knew he was done for. He couldn't stand up. So if the medications had been back in New York, they couldn't have been farther out of his reach. Tom heard him shouting and came in, but like he'd said before, Shaler's magic drug had turned the Dyak into nothing more than a slave. He was indifferent to pain in himself, so if he was indifferent to pain in others, so what? Revenge for the abuse he'd received had not been a factor either. The drug that had short-circuited his aggressive impulses had damaged his generous impulses as well. Jerome Shaler knew in that moment that he had failed, and knew that his secret must not get out, or what he had hoped would be his greatest triumph would, in another's hands, become a weapon far greater than any atomic bomb. Shaler looked at me through his pain, and with his good arm held out a shiny object to me. My cig cigarette case. Papers in the back. Destroy them, Kirk. Burn them. You're listening to the Narada Radio Company's Paul Ferry Theater presentation of Robert Moore Williams's thrilling tale, Tame Me This Beast. We'll be back with the conclusion of our play in just a moment. Hello, gang. Can you believe you're listening to the eighth episode in our first season? Seems like only yesterday I was doing the same thing on the first episode. Well, I'm happy to say that it ain't over yet, and plans are being made to present a second season. That's right, more of what your ears love to hear will be coming your way after this first season concludes. What's in the lineup? Well, I don't want to give too much away but I can tell you that good old Will Shakespeare has consented to let us present a whittled-down version of Hamlet as our season two opener. That's right, gang. We feel that Shakespeare was the world's first Pulp Fiction hack, so what better place to showcase his work than Pulpery Theatre? After that, you can count on a few science fiction stories by such outstanding writers as Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury, and reboots of the two original plays that got this whole beautiful thing started. The Time Cutter and the DNA Pit by our own producer-director, Mr. Pete Lutz. So, that's what Season 2 is shaping up to look like, gang. But don't forget, four more episodes remain of Season 1 and with such pulp genres as war, romance, espionage and sports, you won't want to miss them. All right then, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Tame Me This Beast, 
a Pulpery Theater presentation starring the Narada Radio Company. My cigarette, cigarette case, papers in the back, destroy them, Kirk, burn them. And with those words, Professor Jerome Shaler died. I found the papers in the back of the case, and all night long I studied the formulae. This was the drug Shaler had used on Tom and on the leopard. The process was clear to me. Too clear. I could see the error Shaler had made, that he had created a method of making slaves instead of free men. And I could hear that voice in the back of my head saying, Here's your big chance. You've got to give me credit. All night long I fought against that voice, but little by little it grew stronger. You can be a king, you can be a king it whispered. You can be a big Start shot. with a little town somewhere. Here's your big Make yourself chance. a boss. Slowly and steadily you grow bigger. Pretty soon you'll be the boss of a county, then of a state, then... Here's what's in it for you. There was no limit to what I might become. Maybe the first man to discover how to control fire had heard such a voice. Maybe it was whispered to the inventor who had first learned how to chip flint into a spearhead, or the one who had learned how to melt and cast iron. I fought with that voice all night. With Shaler's dead body lying on the cot, and with Tom dozing in the corner, I argued with the voice that whispered to me. By morning, I knew it had won. I rose to my feet with one purpose, to get off that island and back to civilization as quickly as possible to introduce this formula into the water supply of some small town and begin my slow, steady climb to the top of the heap. I stepped out of Shaler's hut and stood at his doorway for a moment before stepping across to mine. I already felt like a king. I could see myself now, the master of all men, the boss of... Poor Ralph Kirkendall. He'd forgotten that Tom's twin brother, Freddie, was still on the job. Without knowing he had done so, Freddie had just cast the most important spear ever thrown by any headhunter and had saved the world from King Ralph. In the months that followed, the jungle swiftly reclaimed the compound created by Shaler and Kirkendall, lapping like a green tide over the clearing. A year after that, if anyone had gone looking, they would have been hard-pressed to find the spot where Jerome Shaler had conducted his experiments. Within two years, the jungle had fully taken back its own. In the depths of a jungle island, not far from Borneo, lived two savages. One, a proud and fearless hunter. The second, a docile, obedient slave, Freddy and Tom. Perhaps someday, an outrigger canoe will land there and take them away. Meanwhile, Freddy's proudest possessions, to which Tom is, of course, completely indifferent, are two well-cured human heads.
You have been listening to Tame Me This Beast, the eighth program of the Pulpery Theater series, starring the Narada Radio Company. As a special experiment for this episode, our cast was comprised entirely of two actors, Mr. Dana Gonzalez and Mr. Phil Boyd Studge, who split all the parts amongst themselves. We leave it to you to decide who played whom. Faithful followers of Pulpery Theater may be able to guess. Your announcer was still Lisa Ayala, because no one has yet been able to mimic me. Tamey This Beast was originally published as a short story by Robert Moore Williams and appeared in the May 1950 issue of Startling Stories magazine. It was adapted by Pete Lutz, who also directed and produced this program. Tune in again next time for another thrilling episode of Pulpery Theater. Additional vocal characterization by Derek Lutz as ZVBXRPL Fingerman. Tune in for our next episode, a baseball tale called Anything to Oblige. The preceding production was sourced from materials in the public domain except where indicated. The audio play script and the production itself are original works and are the property of their creator and thus protected by copyright. This production was pre-recorded and mixed at 63 Audio, Corpus Christi, Texas. Remember, Pulp Puri Theater is your source for the best in audio drama. This has been a 63 Audio production. Sixty three audio. Buongiorno. I am Flaudio. And I am very interested in what makes audio drama work. I want to share with you my recipe for a perfect evening. An evening for two lovers. Lovers of audio drama. When I plan an audio drama, I want to make sure that everything is perfect for us. The soundscape is the most important thing to set the mood for the night. When I lay in a special ambiance or sound effect, it is very important because it can express what I feel so perfectly. A sound effect can speak for the story when words just cannot capture the love I feel. Love I feel for you. When it is dark, I turn on the sound effects. I turn up the soundscape, and the voices can then dance in a perfect state of bliss, where there is no world except the one we make with our love. No time except what is needed for our story to play out. 
a story that we will make come true. This audio drama public service announcement was brought to you by the Amigos. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.